Thank you. Chancel Choir, love that hymn, that anthem. In the Agape Sunday School class this morning, we were talking about the Apostles' Creed and the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And love the last stanza of that anthem, Lord, haste the day, hurry up the day when our faith shall be sight. When all those things that seem mysterious to us in so many ways will be cleared up and, and we'll all see. Thank you. And also, this past week, we had a sort of new event here. We had a Taco Tunes Day, and we adjourned to the chapel and sang from the Cokesbury Hymnal. And uh, if somebody hadn't stopped us, I think we would still be there. Uh, we had a great time. We sang a lot of the great old hymns out of that little brown Cokesbury Hymnal. Our own Miss Pearl led us in playing and singing, and... Uh, was a terrific time, and I think the consensus was that we need to do that again and do it again very soon. So we'll be working on that. So pay attention and, and listen, and uh, we invite you to come next time and bring some of your favorite selections with you, and uh, we'll have a great time together. But it's been a good week, and it's good to be here with all of you this morning. We welcome you once again to this place. Our scripture lesson for today, and I'll be reading from the message, Eugene Peterson's translation or interpretation of Scripture. It's a little different from some of what you're used to. I use this version in devotional reading and for other things from time to time. And just when I want a different perspective, I want to hear the passage in a different way. Eugene Peterson was terrific. Second Corinthians chapter 5, and I'll begin reading with verse 6. That's why we live with such good cheer. You won't see us drooping our heads or dragging our feet. Cramped conditions here don't get us down. They only remind us of the spacious living conditions ahead. It's what we trust in but don't yet see that keeps us going. Do you suppose a few ruts in the road or rocks in the path are going to stop us? When the time comes, we'll be plenty ready to exchange exile for homecoming. But neither exile nor homecoming is the main thing. Cheerfully pleasing God is the main thing, and that's what we aim to do, regardless of our conditions. Sooner or later, we'll all have to face God, regardless of our conditions. We will appear before Christ and take what's coming to us as a result of our actions, either good or bad. That keeps us vigilant, you can be sure. It's no light thing to know that we'll all one day stand in that place of judgment. That's why we work urgently with everyone we meet to get them ready to face God. God alone knows how well we do this, but I hope you realize how much and deeply we care. We're not saying this to make ourselves look good to you. We just thought it would make you feel good, proud even, that we're on your side and not just nice to your face as so many people are. If I acted crazy, I did it for God. If I acted overly serious, I did it for you. Christ's love has moved me to such extremes. His love has the first and last word in everything we do. Our firm decision is to work from this focused center. One man died for everyone. That puts everyone in the same boat. He included everyone in his death so that everyone could also be included in his life. A resurrection life, a far better life than people ever lived on their own. 
Because of this decision, we don't evaluate people by what they have or how they look. We looked at the Messiah that way once and got it all wrong, as you know. We certainly don't look at him that way anymore. Now we look inside, and what we see is that anyone united with the Messiah gets a fresh start. It's created new. The old life is gone. A new life burgeons. Look at it. This is the word of God for the people of God. Two weeks ago, we began a new summer sermon series in traditional worship here at Noonan First United Methodist Church. The series is titled, Take a Letter. And we're looking at epistle readings from the New Testament. We're talking about letters and the role that letters have played in the church and in our personal lives across the years. And that that whole phrase, take a letter. I know with new technology and new ways of doing business, you may not hear that phrase as much anymore. I thought back to that song, Take a Letter, Maria, and you can look that up sometime. It's not a very good song, but it's one that sort of... It's not very edifying, it's not very helpful, but it's, a, it's got a catchy little tune to it, take a letter. And so we think about taking letters and writing letters and reading letters and keeping letters and preserving letters and all that that means to us. This week, we're focusing on our scripture lesson from 2 Corinthians, especially verse 16, where Paul said, we don't evaluate people by what they have or by how they look. And the more I thought about that phrase, the more a passage from the Old Testament kept coming to mind. And it's one that I think about often, really, and and have used from time to time. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. And I won't take time to read it, but I would commend it to you to read later today if you get a moment. But especially there, I want us to think about verse 7, I believe it is. Hang on to this verse for a moment, and we'll get back around to it as well as what Paul said, mortals, men, women, men, children look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Hang on to that, if you will. Now in scripture, and, and stay with me because this is going to circle back around, I hope. That's, that's my intention anyway. In Scripture, seven is the number that represents wholeness and perfection and completion. Seven's a good number. But six, one less than seven, indicates something fractured or imperfect or incomplete. Six plus seven is 13, and some folks say that's where the tradition of an unlucky 13 came from by the adding together of six and seven. I don't know if that's true or not. But what about six times seven? What about that number 42? 42 is the title of a movie that Mickey and I saw a few years back. And if you haven't seen it, let me recommend it to you. 42 is the story of Jackie Robinson. It's a terrific movie, I think. And I'm sure wherever you find old movies that you can find this one. It's not that old. And watch it if you haven't. Jack Roosevelt, Jackie Robinson, was born on January the 31st, 1919, and died on October the 24th, 1972. He was a baseball player who became the first African-American to play in Major League Baseball in the modern era. Robinson broke the baseball color line when the Brooklyn Dodgers started him at first base on April the 15th, 1947. 
as the first major league team to play a black man since the 1880s. The Dodgers ended racial segregation that had relegated many of the black players to the Negro Leagues, and that for six decades. The example of Robinson's character and unquestionable talent challenged the traditional basis of segregation and had a lot to do with the changes that took place in this country over the years, brought a lot of things to the forefront. In addition to his cultural impact, Robinson had a pretty stellar baseball career. Over 10 seasons, he played in six World Series, and he contributed to the 1995 World Championship for the Dodgers. He was selected for six consecutive All-Star games from 1949 until 1954. He was recipient of the inaugural Rookie of the Year Award in 1947, and he was the most valuable player in the National League in 1949, the first black player so honored. He was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1962, and in 1997, Major League Baseball universally retired his uniform, number 42, across all of Major League Baseball, the first time that anything like that had ever happened in professional sports. And on April 15th, 2004, Major League Baseball declared that every player on every team playing that day would wear the number 42. Jackie Robinson was born into a family of sharecroppers in Cairo, Georgia. I grew up in Georgia. I used to say Cairo until somebody corrected me. Uh, It looks like Cairo to me still, but Cairo, Georgia. He was the youngest of five children. In high school, he lettered in four sports, football, basketball, track, and baseball. And he was also on the tennis team. In 1939, he was one of only four black players on the UCLA football team. Strangely enough, baseball was not Robinson's best thing in college. In UCLA, he hit .097 his only season, although in his first game he went four for four and he stole home plate twice, which is pretty remarkable. While a senior at UCLA, he met his future wife. Her name was Rachel Isom, a freshman. And in 1942, he was drafted by the military, spent a couple of rocky years in the armed forces, and was honorably discharged in 1944. And his baseball career began in 1945 when he was signed by the Kansas City Monarchs, a team that was part of the Negro Leagues. In the mid-1940s, Branch Rickey, you might remember that name, club president, general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers, began to scout the Negro Leagues looking for additions to the Dodgers roster to help them out. And this is when the story, or actually it's when the movie really kind of kicked into gear and got started. As you might expect, much conversation was engendered by 42, and there was much written about it. And I read a lot of the columns and the blogs and the things that were written afterwards, because I really enjoyed the movie. And there are a couple of those columns that stood out for me, and they're very different. One of them was written by Eric Metaxas, and some of you know him, know of his writings, have read some of his books. And uh, he claims that there is a whole at the center of this otherwise worthy film. And that whole would be the film's failure to overtly mention that Robinson was a person of faith, matters of faith. He writes, of course, Hollywood has been skittish about movies and religion since the 1960s, omitting the role of faith in the story, he says, does a serious disservice to the story, to the memories of Jackie Robinson and Branch Rickey. So isn't it time, and these are his words, that Hollywood integrated faith 
where it rightfully belongs. Why should such stories be included or excluded, I'm sorry, from the mainstream in a nation that is filled up with people of faith? If filmmakers do the right thing and break what he calls the God line, they'll find there are countless millions who are willing to watch and enjoy. Now, the second of the two columns, written by a guy named John Smith, writing for ReadingEagle.com, and his title was Movie About Robinson Has Religious Overtones. And he begins like this. He said, the Jackie Robinson story, 42, is surely the top sports movie of the year. It could rank as one of the top religion movies as well. The most obvious reference to religion occurs early when Branch Rickey, who is the Dodgers general manager, makes this statement. And he proclaims this, and some of you will remember this. He said, Jackie Robinson is a Methodist. I'm a Methodist. God is a Methodist. That third phrase about God being a Methodist may be debatable. But it shows that Branch Rickey was a devout Christian. He believed a faith-based young man would better be able to stand up to all the heartache and all the pain and all the difficulties that would come his way because of the barriers he was breaking. Smith, the columnist, then makes three or four other references that helps me to understand the movie is based on faith. We don't always have to quote scripture or refer to things specifically for the faith overtones to come through as they do in some novels and in many movies and certainly in this one. And we'll, we'll mention a few of those as we go along. So who is right? Metaxa says you've got to make it specifically clear that this is a matter of faith. This is chapter and verse. And Smith says, no, you don't have to do that as long as the story's there. The overtones are there. The main message comes through even if you don't quote a specific passage. Now, from my perspective as a Christian, and that only by the grace of God, I assure you, I tend to side with Smith. He, it was not difficult for me to move from the attitudes and actions in the movie portrayed on the screen to the basics of our faith. There are many of them there, and I didn't need for the actors to cite chapter and verse necessarily for me to, to realize this or to see this. Truth is, I might have found that a little distracting. And you might disagree, and if so, then I hope it's a conversation we can continue very soon. So what are some of the attitudes and actions that are faith-based, even if no one says that's what's going on? One of the most notable comes early in the film when Branch Rickey says to Jackie Robinson, I don't want someone who has the guts to fight back. I want someone who has the guts not to fight back. Your enemy will be out in force, but you cannot meet him on his own low ground. Even though it wasn't spelled out, this exchange took me back to the Sermon on the Mount. It reminded me of the words of Jesus, words about turning the other cheek, loving your enemy, praying for those who persecute you. And I was reminded of our Lord hanging on the cross. If Jesus had fought back, number one, it would not have been a fair fight, but we can talk about that on another day. But if he had fought back, then salvation history might not have unfolded in the same way. Because like Gandhi, like Martin Luther King Jr. and others, not grasping the violence and fighting back. But as an aside, and it's really not a side, it's part of the story. A guy named Wendell Smith was the sports writer who followed Jackie Robinson around. And he wrote stories about him throughout the season. But he always sat on the third base side 
in the stands with others because black folk were not allowed in the press box. Jackie Robinson's attitudes and actions were not just about Jackie. They had a major impact on a lot of other people. And when we're living out our faith, that always seems to be the case, doesn't it? It's not just all about us. It's all about a lot of other folk, too. And then another attitude or action in this faith-based film, which I think it is, occurs when the Dodgers come to play Cincinnati across the river from Kentucky. The booing is loud. Kentucky native Pee Wee Reese, who is playing shortstop, and some of you will remember him. I remember seeing him play on television years ago. He walks over to Jackie Robinson at first base, puts his arm around him, and says, I just want people to know who I am. Maybe tomorrow we'll all wear 42 and they can't tell us apart. One of the most powerful moments of the movie for me, it was a goosebump, teary-eyed kind of moment that made me think, made me question my own resolve. And one of those sort of gut check moments where it was my courage meter at that time. Where is it now? A boy whose idol is Pee Wee Reese is sitting next to his father, and the father's in the stand just yelling all these obscenities at Jackie Robinson, all these profanities. The boy reluctantly, but he does, join in with his father and begins to shout the same kind of things, begins to imitate his dad. And then he sees what Pee Wee Reese has done by walking over and putting his arm around Jackie Robinson. And the look on the boy's face is priceless. It wasn't spelled out, but once more I could hear the words of Jesus. It would be better for you if a great millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea than for you to cause one of these little ones to stumble. I thought back to my younger days, growing up in Atlanta in the late 50s and in the 60s. And I remember my grandfather on my mother's side, Charles Emily Emery Slade. I was named for my grandfathers. Papa Charlie was what the hymn writer in an earlier generation might have called a mixture strange of good and ill. In other words, he had a dark side and he had a light side. I recall some of the stories he told. He could tell the most wonderful pirate stories. They just seemed so real. And he'd go on for the longest time, and it was more entertaining and more fun than anything that was on television at the time. And he got me interested in coin collecting. And one evening we were sitting at the kitchen table, and I was going through a roll of pennies. And I got so excited because there were two Indian head pennies in that roll. Later on, I found the little cardboard and plastic containers where my grandfather had bought these pennies and had loaded that roll, and he did it all for his grandson. There's something that grandfathers understand and, and know about. He'd do that for a little guy like me. But his dark side was sometimes darker than a starless night. Papa Charlie and Grandmama Alice employed an African-American woman named Rona as a maid two days a week. Rona was deaf and she could not speak. Her eyes were good, though, and when she saw me and saw my sister, she got so excited. And she smiled, and she wagged her head, and she was just so grateful to see us. She would hug us like there was no tomorrow. Rona lived somewhere out near 
what used to be Turner Field, Georgia State Stadium now. And she could not drive, so my grandparents had to pick her up and take her home. And one afternoon, we were taking Rona home, and my grandmother was driving. She always did. And my grandfather was in the passenger seat up front. Rona was in the middle in the back, and my sister was on one side, and I was on the other. And my grandfather, it was a 1953 Ford. I do remember that. And my grandfather turned around to face Rona, and I don't know what provoked this. And he had the angriest look on his face that I had ever seen, and the vile language punctuated with the N-word just flowed like a stream after a violent storm, and it was awful, and Rona just kept smiling through what few teeth she had, mercifully unable to hear what the bully, what the coward in the front seat was saying to her. When my grandfather died in 1994, I stood by his open casket and, and talked with him. I do that sometimes. I hope you don't think that's too weird. Maybe you've, you've done that too. And I said, Papa, if you, again by the grace of God, have made it to heaven, you better be careful about what you say. You need to remember that our disabilities here will disappear there. Understand Papa, that Rona can hear you now. And one other thing you need to be careful about, she can also speak. And perhaps if I thought about it, I would have taken one of those little cards that the funeral homes give out, written the number 42 on it and put it in his suit pocket. That would have made him think maybe. So here I am at the near the end of what I wanted to say, and I hope you don't think I've gotten too far away from the scripture lesson. Let me see if we can circle back around quickly. In the passage from Samuel where we read about God looking on the heart and people looking on the outward appearance, what happened is that King Saul has gone off the deep end. He's gone over the cliff. Mentally, he has lost it. And so God is picking a next king of Israel. And so he sends the prophet Samuel down to visit Jesse. Jesse lived in Bethlehem and had a house full of boys. Now, after Jesse's son named Eliab had come out of the house and had been paraded before the prophet, he was one macho-looking, strong, kingly-appearing young man. And Samuel just got all excited and said, this is the one. This is the next king. Look at him. He looks like a king. And Samuel was able to say, and the Lord was able to say to Samuel, do not look on his outward appearance. For mortals look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And eventually the Lord directed Samuel to choose the youngest of Jesse's sons. And some of you, maybe all of you have heard of that young man. His name was David. So is there a faith takeaway from this episode in Bethlehem? Yes, I believe there is. It's pretty simple and straightforward. Mortals look on the outward appearance and God looks on the heart. But even the straightforward and the simple sometimes escapes us, sometimes escapes me. And I need something to remind me, and maybe a numerical reminder would be helpful from day to day. How about six times seven? Oh yeah, when you check your mail, when you open that letter from the Apostle Paul that we read just a little while ago, reread chapter five, if you would, in verse 16. We don't evaluate people by what they have or by how they look. Amen.